0: Go ahead and take the
1: speed up. Your number one now, runway like two seven three, land green dot. Welcome nice done, guys, guys. Hello and welcome to the Green Dot EAA's podcast for anyone and everyone who loves aviation. The Green Dot, sponsored by GE Aviation. My name is Hal Bryan, and I am the Senior Editor for Print and Digital Content and Publications here at EAA. One of the hosts of the Green Dot. Sitting here on my left, it is.
0: I'm Chris Henry, and one of the other hosts. I'm also the Museum Programs Coordinator.
1: All right, and Chris, we have a guest. He's sitting there across the table, and he looks frightened.
0: <laughs> he does, he does. Now, <laughs> <laughs> We're really happy to have all the way from Texas, Taylor Stevenson joining us, uh, who actually flies with the CAF and with the TORAH Act. So thank you for coming up and being with us today.
2: Yeah, absolutely. The scared look is also what I have in the cockpit as well. Exactly. Well, that's, that same holds true for all of us. Yeah, exactly. right. <laughs> For all
0: of
1: us above average pilots, which is everybody.
0: Coming in low is just <laughs> part of landing. Yeah, exactly. <laughs>
1: exactly. Uh, so Taylor, let's before we sort of dive into what you do these days mm-hmm. uh, with Torah and all that, uh, all that cool stuff. I I always love to go back to go back to the beginning and find out, you know, how what was it about aviation? How did you how did you get involved? Do you remember the first thing you you loved about aviation? Were you a model airplane yeah. kid? All that good stuff.
2: I don't actually remember the first thing about aviation because it's just always been in the family. Um, so I was blessed to have grown up with uh, my dad, Gordon Stevenson, who. Um, I guess when I was born, he used to scuba dive and ski and all that stuff. And he's like, yeah, I can't really do that with a little kid. What can I do? And so uh, he'd always wanted to fly. My grandfather was a, a flight engineer on B-24s in the Pacific with oh, the 380th wow. Bomb Group. And so he had always grown up um, with uh, my grandfather. And my great uncle was a tail gunner on B-25s, always telling stories of aviation. And so he always wanted to do that. Well, I guess I kind of kickstarted it. Um, so he was at in 1989. He was at the Addison, Texas Air Show, and there were uh, two T6s um, for sale. And so Dad went up, and you know what looks cooler than a T6 sitting out there, and it was kind of a, a fresh paint job on it. And he walks up and um, uh, calls one of uh, his good friends at the time, um, who's you know basically my uncle uh, Ray Kenny, who had his pilot's license, and uh, said, "Hey Ray, let's buy let's buy a T6." And Ray, it was kind of one of those things, you know, oh, okay, whatever, whatever, you know, call me when you need the money, you know, didn't ever thought it was happening. Well, dad bought the T6, called Ray up. And uh, two weeks later, dad signed up for flying lessons. So he kind of jumped head first into the thing, <laughs> um, awesome. getting a pilot maker. So, um, so I did grow up, uh, just grew up in the backseat of a T6 when I was six years old. I remember, um, Uh, freedom flight 95 where we took 120 aircraft from long beach california to new york uh, city um i think we did six or seven air shows along the way and so there's no greater child i could have asked for a greater childhood than getting to go and 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 um and experience that and the neat thing is um I'm excited to share it with my kids, but it's it's kind of a bittersweet thing because I'm going to be one of the last generation that actually got to interact with the people that flew these in combat that built them um, back in Korea, World War II, sure. uh, and before. So I'm, I'm really blessed to have been able to grow up um, with aviation. That's excellent.
1: So tell us a little bit about your flight training. When did you start learning to fly? Obviously, you so said you've been around it. You grew up with yeah, the oh, yeah. T six, which is just. Fantastic! Oh, I think I'd like to fly. I'll just buy a T6 first. That is a fantastic way to approach it.
2: Well, yeah. He uh, so dad and I are both kind of like that. Um, But uh, really, dad always joked that I was uh, I could fly IFR uh, when I was probably eight years old because I couldn't see over the canopy rail. And he'd say, "Oh, I need to change maps, hold the instrument." I'd sit there and look at you know artificial horizon and just kind of keep it going. We had that
1: exact same joke in my family. That was me too. Really,
2: I love that. Yeah. So. so Ray, Ray Kenny also had a, um, a 1946 Piper J3 Cub uh, with a 65-horse engine in it, you know, no electrical system, about as good as it gets. And so when I was uh, 15, he started, you know, doing kind of the formal... Uh, flight trainer with me, and uh, a good family friend, uh, uh, Aubrey Hare, who flew war- flew basically everything in the stable for Kavanaugh Flight Museum and flew T-6s and stuff. Um, I was Aubrey's last student. We like to, he he's, he kind of wears, he says he wears that as a badge of honor. I think I just scared him so bad. He didn't <laughs> want another student. But no, it was, uh, so I grew up, fly, uh, uh, when I was 15, uh, flying a Piper Cub out of uh, Arrow Country, uh, north of Dallas. And on my 16th birthday, soloed the Cub, uh, then drove from the airport after getting my student license to the DMV to get my driver. So I always like to say I, I could legally fly before I could drive. That's awesome. Um, so the Cub was awesome to build time in. There's nothing neater than, you know, going cross country and the 18 wheelers are passing you and you know, everywhere <laughs> you stop, you gotta fill up, hand prop it, chalk it, and and go. So, um, but after that, we um, I'd always knew just growing up wanted to get into warbirds and you can't just go you could but you know there's got to be a logical step between a cub and the t6 and then beyond and so i'd always loved the stinson l5 and to me the l4 was i don't know i'm gonna you know there's some Grasshopper aficionados out there, they probably aren't going <laughs> to like what I'm going to say, but the L4 is a Piper Cub with more glass. It was a it was, it was an existing design that was um, translated into military service. Same thing with the L3, um, same thing with the L2, the BC12 or or Champ, and the L1 and the L5 were designed from the ground up as a military machine it was a warbird um, instead of 65 horse we've got you know 190 horsepower it's got flapping flaps drooping ailerons it was cool so i remember being 12 years old and um uh 11 or 12 and sam tabor who's always up here at oshkosh with his l5 walked right up to him about the best guy on the planet walked up to him and started talking and, and um sometimes you get some people in aviation that um when somebody young walks up to him, you know, they don't necessarily discount him, but it's kind of like, okay, he's asking some questions and stuff. I would just, boom. And Sam is one of those great individuals that um, he latched on. He told me all the information I ever wanted to know about the L5 and, and just encouraged he and Jim Gray, um, Duncan Cameron, and some of these others that were in that L5 group just really took me under their wing and so eventually found a found a project and began a restoration so that was my my first foray into warbirds myself
1: oh that's very cool yeah sam's a sam's a good friend to a bunch of the well to, to the organization in general and um uh he's our boss jim Busher our, our oh, publications yeah. is one of his best buddies and oh yeah jim has an l5 so oh that's very cool
0: and taylor you uh i mean your l5 restoration is is gorgeous i mean Thank you. Uh, that was one of the first ones I noticed. He that, says that to all the guests. Uh, I, so, do, yeah. I do. I <laughs> do. Uh, but no. Seriously, your aircraft is impressive.
2: Well, yeah, I appreciate it. It was. Um, uh, we were lucky enough to find a, a really solid project from uh, Duncan Cameron out. And he was in Tennessee at that point, point. and so I went out there and um, um, and took a look at it. And you know, Dad and I, we I grew up working on cars and and, and airplanes a little bit with Dad, and um, really. We had been looking for an L5 uh, that was kind of plug-and-play, but it's kind of like any, anything for, I guess, a parent. You know, I, don't, I don't have kids, but I'm sure one day I'll realize it was like none of them were kind of up to his standard. He wanted the most safe. You know, you wanted to make sure it was gone through and all that stuff, and we finally determined. And we started out with saying, we're not getting a project. Well, that seemed to be the, the only way we were going to get a project that we, that we really liked at, at that market at that point. Um, so I went over, I'd heard about this, uh, uh guy just, uh, uh, kind of in between Dallas and Fort Worth named Lanny Parcell, funny, awesome guy, one of my best friends. Um, so I flew the cub over there and he has restored, shoot, probably 15 L5s over the year, um, and started talking with him and we ended up, uh, uh I said, Hey, you know, if I get this, can you, you know, the two of us kind of start working on it and, um, Know, basically be my mentor and 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 teach me how to do this and and so I went out to, got the L5 and uh, from that point I think it was about 16 months and we had a flying airplane so wow. it was it was uh, it was pretty much my two it was two summers it was during high school so I was um, 17 18 19 and uh, those two summers that was my job I drove the 40 minute each way drive out to prop wash uh, little airport flying community and worked with him and uh, it was the most amazing, it was the best experience ever. Because, you know, whether it's a L5 or Cub or T6 or P51 or Pilatus or whatever, the principles you learn rebuilding a Cub, they get more compl- complicated, but, you know, carburetor's carburetor is uh, carburetor. Uh, internal combustion engine, to all extent, is an internal combustion engine. So, it was a great learning experience in being able to, um, I guess, quickly troubleshoot whatever something was going on because you've seen it, you put it together. So it was just an amazing experience. So, yeah, we came up in it was Oshkosh 2009, and um, you know, we're honored to receive, I think it was the best L-bird. Um, so it was it was great. Yeah, very cool. That's awesome.
0: The um, Now, and you've also become sort of a safe haven for other L5 projects,
2: right? I've seen other fuselages kind
0: of hanging out around here. Oh, yeah, I'm hangar. sitting,
2: yeah, sitting here scratching my neck. I've got the addiction. It's uh, a <laughs> – it's one of those things that you always, uh, it's always the good deals. You know, it's like, okay, oh, man, I don't really need another L5 project when I'm going to build it. But, oh, man, it's got this part that's really rare or it's, you know, <laughs> just such a great deal I can't pass up. So now I think we're, um, I think we're up to f- uh, three full projects that are hanging from our rafters of our hangar, um, but probably got five and a half airplanes worth of parts. And wow. it's just... Um, um, Part of it is preserving it, because, I mean, the, the wings are wood, the tail's wood. Um, if you leave them outside, you have dry rod issues and stuff like that. So, you really need to make sure that they're indoors. The early aircraft had the the early casing glue that breaks down over time. Um, the later models have the more synthetic resorcinol. So, if you find a resorcinol wing, it's imperative get it inside, protect it, because they're, they're usually going to be good. Um, so part of its preservation, and part of it's just my crippling addiction to the, the L5 Sentinel.
1: <laughs> Nothing wrong with that whatsoever. No, and
2: it just had such a storied um, storied history. I mean, it, basically, it the C47, maybe the P40. There were a few airplanes that every single, and L4, every single campaign, um, most air forces during World War II, um, it saw action. I mean, it, it was in Burma, it was in you know uh, Southeast Asia, it was in Europe, everywhere. So it's just got a very interesting history. Um, and one of my favorite um, L5-related trinkets we have is one of the uh, the two known existing Brody hooks. Um, there's one in the Smithsonian, there's one with us, and and, uh, and there's a, there is a flying replica on L4 that comes Oshkosh a lot. But it's like, who would have thought to take a, a L5, and essentially the Brody hook is a big old hook they put on the top of it and landed on nets off the side of ships. And, uh, and so it's just like... Who would have thought? There's no other airplane, you know, you could have done that with. It seemed like a good idea at the time. Yeah, it was kind of a, hey, hold my beer. Like, I'm going to go try this. And actually, it's really kind of counterintuitive. They they lost a few airplanes in the initial trials um, because – it's, okay, what's a, a tail dragger? You're landing, you know, it's power, typically it's power off and you've got, um, you know, it's the stick back, you know, the three-point attitude and you're right. touching down. Well, the problem with that is when you hit that net, your inertial wants to, it wants to pull you forward and up as you swing up so really what you have to do is full power and stick way forward to try to get enough um authority to keep it from slinging up and so they actually had some of these guys and they just plopped into the water and that's when we found out that um what was about a 30 foot right down in the water will break the landing gear on an l5 and it springs upwards and it'll block the doors so they had to kick out the front windows to get out and stuff oh so i never want to i never want to try that out but i'm sure i've heard it happens <laughs> it looks cool at the air yeah show. exactly yeah. well that's what somebody said yeah man you should put the brody hook on an l5 and do a demonstration and i said well i'll have to build all four of my l5s because i'll wreck them all in a season trying to <laughs> yeah but, but otherwise, yeah. Otherwise, <laughs> yeah. well, I'll do that. You buy the big LST ship. I can do it. At yes, the yes, exactly. Yeah. exactly.
1: <laughs> do it out at the seaplane base.
2: So oh yeah, that'd be
1: fantastic. So, what was your progression moving on from there? So you get into the L fives. That's what you're
2: flying, and then mm-hmm.
1: and then tell me about uh, types flown and how you work your way work your yes. way on from
2: there. So um, the L five is a great trainer. Uh, it's it's well. I would say it's not a great introductory tailwheel trainer. It was a great transition from the L5, or sorry, the Cub to, um, you know, the T6 or something like that, because it is, it's actually a squirrely airplane. You've got these um, um, struts that the gear comes in through the sides of the aircraft, and then it hits these two struts, and there's, there's slack, about three inches of slack in each strut. So in flight, the landing gear kind of tucks under when that it takes up that slack. So you don't really want it on pavement especially, you don't really want to grease it on. You got to uh, make sure you kind of plop it in because what'll happen is if you grease it on, w- they'll stay tucked and then they start kind of untucking alternatingly. So it probably will not, you know, ground loop itself or something like that, but people overcorrecting for that may. So you just, it's a really good, um, squirrelier tailwheel trainer. So, great hours flying that um got a few hundred hours in the l5 and then started uh transitioning into the t6 ray kenny once again we started uh flying together uh, he put me in the front seat and uh it was pretty cool it was my it was pretty much my first introduction into retractable gear and um, high performance and uh, variable pitch prop sure. so it was a lot to a lot to kind of throw at at the at,
1: all at once but it was but that's just as it would have been in the war oh, yeah you know that they, was that was your first complex airplane for for many people if you're coming out of a stearman or orion or something absolutely like that. move on to the t6 is a high performance retractable complex yeah and the, it seems incredibly daunting now
2: but you look
1: back and these were teenagers that were oh yeah back and then. It's and
2: they the neat part about that generation is i mean they they lived and breathed it i i think i flew a lot Moving to that point, but I mean they were day in, day day out, and in sure. worst case they wreck one, they push off the side, wash the guy out, and they've got a thousand more behind it. So <laughs> we're a little more cautious these days. So uh, I flew with uh, flew with Ray um, and a couple other uh, instructors and got my T6 check out, and really just started started flying it because I'd uh, grown up kind of with the, the, with the formation, you know, going to formation clinics with Dad and in the North American Trainers Association and the CAF's Trayron, and the best piece of one of the best pieces of advice I got was, hey, you know, before you do any of the formation, um, the T6 needs to be second nature before you do formation, and uh, and getting on later to flying for Torah and some of the higher performance, you know, flying formation needs to be second nature before you do any of that. So really, just kind of started flying the heck out of the T6 and um, burning a lot of gas. Uh, so yeah, that you know. 28 to 32 gallons an hour you go through gas pretty quickly right. but um not to mention oil oh like, yeah right. oil it's it's not leaking it's out you know it's um <laughs> but started flying that flying uh, two ships with some friends doing formation and then um really the next thing was uh, to get your uh, your formation air safety fast uh, wing card and so was lucky uh, uh i received that out in midland texas with uh um Ray Hoffman, uh, he got his late lead card. He's uh, uh, no longer with it with us, so it was kind of a special moment there. Uh, and two of my buddies, uh, good friends, got their wing cards that weekend too. So um, really just started flying formation. That's kind of when the world opens up, you can go play. Right, absolutely. <laughs> so,
0: I mean, you, you've actually went from, you know, uh, conventional, the G3 Cub, mm-hmm. uh, to L-Bird, to, you know, the L5, to T6. What comes after the T six? Because I know you've gotten to fly some pretty interesting airplanes.
2: Yeah. So the T six, and I'll talk a little bit about the T six. The T six, I think, gets um, an appropriately bad reputation, but it's really a sweetheart. It's kind of it's like any airplane. It's it's with flown within its limits, it is an amazing airplane. You cannot have and it's arguable, but you cannot have any more fun than a in a T six. If I I've flown some, gotten to fly some neat stuff, and I think if somebody said. What do you if you could have one airplane? What it would be? It'd either be a you know Piper Cub or or a T six, um, so it is a it is truly the pilot maker. That's how it got its name. So it's a great trainer um, for the fighters. But uh, in today's environment, that's kind of controlled by insurance companies, and they they pretty much set the the requirements these days. Um, you know the minimums basically are you know, one hundred hours of T six. Um, and then in the CAF, depending on the unit you fly for, uh, it's a, a hundred to two hundred hours of the T six, and then I don't know a thousand total time or something like that. So um, l- early twenty seventeen, um, I had the opportunity to fly with one of the best organizations out there, the Collins Foundation, and um, they have such a awesome professional. Their, their the instructors I had were um, were great and I, I got transitioned into their p51 Mustang the um, uh, two loose nets yeah. and that is a beautiful airplane there's nothing cooler than a, you know atf51 absolutely oh yeah so yeah. I was I was uh, that was my first foray into the fighters um, so I got checked out into that it was um, you know first time behind a v12. And really, the reason I wanted to do that was I had the opportunity to fly the um, uh, the P sixty three King Cobra for the the uh, Dixie Wing of um, the CAF, which is based out in Atlanta. And um, that's a single seat, you know, uh, V twelve, and I kind of wanted somebody with me the first time I flew the <laughs> flew the V twelve. But really, the T six did a amazing job prepping you for the Mustang, and I can see how people like Howard Pardue, you know, always used to joke, yeah, you should really, you know, start out in the Bearcat, go to the P51, and then you're ready for the T6 type of thing, because (laughs) the, well, I did my my Mustang training down in Stewart, Florida, and we had a little coastal wind coming in, and I was a little, you know, okay, you know, I don't know what it was, 15 knots or something like that, but it was uh, a crosswind coming for my first landing and I'm all prepped and I get, you know, typical crosswind correction at my, you know, the end of the wind landing gear touches just slightly first and I'm waiting for the other one and I bring it down. And compared to the T6, it felt like that other landing gear was at the wing tip of the, <laughs> of the Mustang. It was such a, it's a wide stance. It's pretty, pretty solid. So, um, it was, the T6 did a great job. So, uh, started transition into the the p63 King cobra which it's an experimental aircraft so uh, the neat one part about this one is you really um, the way the paperwork's written on this one is you need a logbook entry from somebody that's a CFI that's checked on the aircraft and then um, then you have to get your um, experimental aircraft authorization basically the experimental typewriting for it and the really the only way you do that is have have one of the designated examiners sitting on the ground watching you saying you know don't mess up <laughs> yeah <laughs> have fun Um so, um, uh, two of my good friends, uh, Craig Hutain and, uh, Mark Todd, who both flew P63s were out there and, I uh, did, um, uh, some transition training. So this, the CAF's requirements are that, uh, with two different, um, of their check airmen, you have to do a full check ride from the backseat of a T6 to simulate the lack of visibility and, um, and all that good stuff. So, uh, did those two and then, uh, went out to Atlanta I basically did a cockpit checkout and, uh, way way i went uh the p63 is such a unique aircraft it's i call it the a10 warthog of World war ii because literally they it in the the aerocobra the p39 uh basically were designed around a gun platform they so the government said hey we need a 37 millimeter cannon you know make it fly and so then you got all the problems like, okay you got It's got to be in front. We don't want to put it on the wings. It's so big. You got to put it up front. So that means you got a weight and balance issue. So you got to put the engine behind the pilot. Well, how do you then get the drive shaft from the engine up to the, you know, the propeller? Okay, we got to do this drive shaft between your legs, the infamous drive shaft between your legs that's going to come apart and scramble you in the cockpit, which there's no, I have never seen a, that's an old wives tale. I've never seen an issue of that. Um, but yeah, it was just such a feat of engineering. And I was actually a little more nervous about flying the 63, not because the engine's behind me or anything like that, because because most of my, most if not all of my time was all tailwheel. Sure. And so I was actually like, it's counterintuitive. I was actually more <laughs> nervous back in, in the nose wheel airplane. But, um, N-
1: never mind the fact that it's a priceless, not quite, oh, yeah, basically one of a kind. <laughs> oh, yeah, two flying. Yeah so, we, flying so there,
2: yeah, so we, so there, yeah, so there's, um, so anyway, so yeah, I was, I was a little bit, they said the hardest part about it is just taxing the thing because it's a free castering, it's kind of like a B25, it's a free castering nose wheel. So you've got, it's pretty much just differential braking at, at slower speeds. Um, so I taxied around the, the airport a little bit, got the feel for it. Uh, one of the things that's a gotcha, and it's not really, there's no like safety Issue with it. It's just more of a uh, safety of your pride issue. Is that nose wheel you can turn so tight that it gets cocked over so tight that you can't uncock oh, oh, it? Oh. So you got to shut down, get out. <laughs> and of course, you know, everyone's watching. Luckily, that you know, knocking on wood that hasn't happened to me yet, but that was one of the things they said, Oh, just don't cock the nose wheel over because it's embarrassing. Yeah. You know? <laughs> and of course, you're going to do that, you know, at Oshkosh or something in of front course. of a million <laughs> <Yeah>. people. <laughs> right. But um, so it's great. It's a, um, uh, the weirdest part about it is the first time you start it, <clears throat> and uh, luckily one of my instructors it didn't didn't surprise me because one of my instructors told me, "Hey, dude, when you start this thing, it's gonna feel it's gonna feel and sound like you're breaking it. You're not breaking it because what happens is you have there's a certain harmonic that the drivetrain going from the engine through your legs through the gun compartment up to the remote gearbox up in front." It likes you know once you get past sixteen, seventeen, eighteen hundred RPM, it'll kind of it'll harmonize. But when it's it shakes and rattles and all that stuff, it, it, it's it's cool now looking back on it. But the first time you're sitting there, like he said, I'm not breaking it, but I feel like I'm breaking it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's fantastic. I what also a,
0: love the fact that you can like roll down the window and lean out like you should oh, go yeah. on like, a car hop <laughs> right, or something. Exactly. Yeah, you know? well, I think
2: actually the. I think it was Studebaker that Bell actually had the yeah. doors under contract from them, so it's literally like a, you know you're driving down the road in a 32 Chevy, you can <laughs> you can roll the windows down, but well, the, that
1: makes it easier to wave somebody over and say, "Hey, straighten up my nose
0: wheel." <laughs> exactly. So exactly. Out. <laughs> exactly. How do I start this again? Come <laughs> yeah. here. Yeah.
2: No, it's a, uh it's a a neat airplane. The uh, bad part about those windows is you can only. Drop them about a half inch, I think, in flight, and so they don't really do any. They're more for show than anything. um And people say, "Oh, well, oh, those cool doors on the side. It's got to be easy to get in and out of, and all that stuff." I was like, "Man, it is, it is. Hard. It was, it was built for a contortionist to get in there. <laughs> and on the left side, you can't even really use that door because the throttle quadrant is actually fully in the door. It's like the oh, door man. gap itself. So if you open it up, you got the throttle in there. So really, unless you." really screwed something up and you got some spin you're trying to bail out of or something you need to go to the outside you know you'd always use that right door um, but it is a there's just so many little engineering fe- uh, tweaks in it that make it such a cool airplane it's actually the best airplane I've flown that for a static display at an air show because we have a replica 37 millimeter cannon with all the cool big old brass shells and the 250s up front so with about probably 30 Zeus's, I can Undo that whole uh, side of the gun panel. People walk up and they see the gun right there. With a few more, I can take the uh, engine panels off the side, and you're looking at an Allison engine sitting right there. So, it's a very, um, it's a very cool airplane to get little kids all excited about. Sure. Hey, Dad, there's a huge gun. Let's go look at that. Or yeah. What's this engine like? Can you tell me more about this? And about every single person that walks up says, "Oh, that's a cool Merlin engine," and you have to be like, "Oh, well, actually, it's an Allison engine." And, um, you know way better than a Merlin but yeah <laughs> well, send
1: your cards and letters yeah. to Taylor yeah, exactly. we've got
2: we've got uh, Merlin people and cub
0: people yeah, at us now. Oh, yeah, yeah <laughs> exactly. let's yeah, who else we can
1: uh, we can irritate yeah there well, we let's, go uh, let's shift gears just a little bit talk about uh uh talk about Torah the Torah the act of course um you know traces its uh, its lineage back to the film that as we're recording this we're screening the movie tonight and you and I will be introducing it later Taylor cool. um but uh uh in my opinion, um, talking about the movie for just a second, probably one of the two uh, two best sort of aviation war movies you know, ever made. I put it; it's to me, it's *Tora* and *Battle of Britain*. Mm-hmm. Um, in terms of great flying and lots of real airplanes and stuff, and of course, decades before CGI and things like that. So, around the time of the making of the movie, um, you know, we're, we're taking. T-6s and BT-13s, largely, as I understand it, and correct me if I'm wrong, and Mm -hmm. that's what we're using as the basis for Zeros and VALs and Kates uh, to recreate these Japanese aircraft so you could have, uh, recreate the Pearl Harbor attack and have this sort of armada. So what was the path from uh, uh, these airplanes getting uh, built and used for for that much-loved film, uh, going from there to it becoming uh, uh, a demonstration that we've seen at air shows for decades now?
2: So in, I believe it was 1971, the production company, after things were all said and done, they made so many of these airplanes, you know, they shipped them back to the States uh, after filming over in Hawaii. And it was kind of like, okay, what do you, you know, what do you do with all these? They sold some, they donated some. Well, they ended up, the production company donated uh, four zeros and a Kate and a Val to, uh, at that point, the Confederate Air Force down in Harlingen. And of course, they had to put them back together, put radios in them, get them all back up to snuff. And then it was at the '72 Galveston um, show that I think it was—you know—during the opening ceremony and stuff like that, they they flew them around in a, like a simulated dogfight um, to uh, basically start the show. Being the first part of World War II it was Pearl Harbor uh, on for the Americans. And uh, so it kind of once they did that, people were like, "Oh, that's kind of cool." And so. Formally in 72, they started um, uh, marketing initially just in Texas, but now we fly air shows all over the country and, in fact, international air shows we've flown as well. And we're now the the longest continually operating civilian air show act in the world. We've been, uh, I think, our 2022 will be our 50th year. Wow. So it's going to be a big, big year for us. So, right now we have 11 aircraft, and they're all owned by the, the Commemorative Air Force. Um, which, if you don't know, the CAF was founded in 1957. It's uh, It along with, you know, Planes of Fame and some of the other early museums are really the reason we have warbirds today because right. of the foresight of uh, you know Lloyd Nolan, Lefty Gardner, some of these, these uh, warbird pioneers. So, um, we have over 160 aircraft all across the, the nation. So, uh, 11 of those aircraft are the TOR aircraft. And um, they're with the TOR group, and there's a VAL now with um, the Tex Hill Wing down in San Antonio. So, We've got, uh, the unit has three Kates, um, a Val, and then the rest are all Zeros. So I am one of the uh, lucky Kate pilots, which I'll, you know, there's only about nine people I'm going to make mad with this comment. The okay. Kates are way better than the Zeros, I'm just saying.
1: <laughs> okay. So good, well, now we're focusing your anger. That's good. <laughs> <laughs> <That's great. laughs> yeah, exactly. So, so the Kate, of course, being the well, the Nakajima, the torpedo the, bomber. Yes, so...
2: So the the there are no there's um, one substantial uh, kind of it's not really a wreck it's more of a derelict aircraft that was left on a uh, island for years that uh, the museum out in uh, Pearl Harbor has and then there's another r- kind of insubstantial wreck so there's no real Kate's uh, really complete or let alone flying sure. um, so and that's kind of the problem the production company ran into filming the movie was they determined that at that point in the late 60s there were actually still plenty of these Japanese aircraft derelict on some of these islands which hindsight being what it is I kind of wish they had used original aircraft back then because they would have ended up saving it but they determined that it would take five of those wrecks to build one flying airplane back then and just it was cost prohibitive to go to go get that so what they did for the Kate um All of them is that, like you mentioned, they took T sixes, they took uh, 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 Volte BT thirteen, the vibrator, the the basic trainer, and made them look actually very (laughs) similar to the original aircraft. Um, So for the the zeros, it's essentially a T six with some modifications. It's the least modified um, aircraft out of all of them, they enlarged the cowling, fake cowl flaps, did a bunch of kind of reprofiling with fiberglass fairings, raised the canopy, some stuff like that. But um, the substantial one was the, the the replicas of the Nakajima B-5 nk Kate. So, they ended up with a product that profile-wise, it's a smaller aircraft than the original, but profile-wise, it's probably the most spot-on of the three aircraft they converted. But to do so, it was a very kind of labor-intensive process. They took a T-6. Well, really, they took experimental uh, Harvard Mark IVs because they were the cheapest ones to acquire at the time because of their, their, uh, the category that they were in, and elongated the fuselage five feet, two feet up in the nose, did all sorts of reprofile aircraft. So I'm lucky enough to get to fly one of those torpedo bombers. and it's, uh, uh, We do about oh, 15 air shows a year all over the country, and it's, mm-hmm. it's fun.
1: I remember first seeing it and it was about 2000 and it was at the uh, end of season CAF show. Mm -hmm. And I think it was right after they moved to Midland or fairly soon after the move to Midland from Harlingen and just being absolutely blown away at just there's smoke and chaos and explosions and airplanes everywhere. And then, you know, over the years, when you watch carefully, you start to see a little bit of the choreography that goes into it. Um, but I know that doesn't even scratch the surface. Can you talk just a little bit about what's what's a typical briefing and what what are you actually doing uh, doing in the show? You know, you're not just everybody. Hey, everybody, take off, turn your smoke on, and you know, and <laughs> don't and, hit me. <laughs> try not to hit no. anybody and dive at the runway. We know that's not the case.
2: No, it is not, and um, it's like anything in the the warbird movement these days. You know, safety is our number one priority. That's why we. Um, there is a very regimented training program to um, uh, to be, become a Torah pilot. First of all, the group has to ask you. That's probably the hardest part out of anything um, because we do only have, you know, a dozen or a little bit more pilots for these aircraft. Um, but we require, because of the choreography, that um, the candidate flies a, uh, rides a minimum of 10 times in a pyrotechnic show from the backseat observing. And then they can graduate to the front seat with somebody observing them for let's say five shows, and then they get the sign off that they're good to go. So uh, briefings are always—it's uh, a very standard briefing. We have it everything written out that we literally go bullet point by bullet point, reading what we what we need to do. Um, the mainly, main thing that changes day to day is just the aircraft that are there because we have 11 air, 11 aircraft and it's a show really with eight aircraft and then usually the sometimes a P-40 will go in as well. Um, but what it is is there's, and I don't know, all the tour guys are probably, oh, you're going to give away our secrets. People aren't going to think it's chaos, but really it's, it's, a uh, the three different Eric, the three different patterns. There's three patterns. There's a zero pattern, which essentially is the, the pattern everybody plays off of. Um, so it is a di- ascending and descending racetrack pattern. That's furthest away from the, um, uh, furthest away from the, the audience. Then, um, uh, about 250 feet, Inboard of that is a cape pattern, which we fly a big dog bone around the zeros. And then there's usually down the runway, if that's where the show line is, 250 feet closer to the audience. The closest one is usually one fighter and either our replica P-63, or sorry, uh, P-36 Hawk, or um, the P-40. And it's the fighter pattern that flies a bigger dog bone. So from the audience perspective, you have airplanes left and right, right and left, you know, bombs going off and all this stuff, and it looks like chaos. But one of the best places to watch it, actually, is when we do Oshkosh and go over to, like, Basler or something on that end of the field, and you can look and see right down each one of the patterns. So you know there's both uh, vertical and horizontal separation. Everyone has highs and lows altitudes. And the biggest thing, the one cardinal rule of it is we have, if anybody in the group— calls a mayday everyone goes to their highest altitude and that way the guy that has the issue will never be higher than that and doesn't have to worry about anyone coming down so it's we have after almost 50 years they've really developed some amazing you know safety mechanisms and we harp on it day in and day out sure. wow the
0: uh i have to ask i mean is it a little uh uh, do you get a little sentimental, or do you get a the, the feeling that you're strapping on something special when you walk out to this cape? So,
2: so yeah, yes, you do it so much that it's um, you almost become kind of jaded and don't. And it really kicks back to you if you don't fly a show and you get to watch it because our, our announcers are amazing, our pyrotechnics team is second to none, and between all that, getting to watch it, and not being in the cockpit, and hearing all the the gunfire, the narration stuff, you it's one of those that gives you goosebumps. Um, but yeah, it is very special to strap that on, and it's it is safe in regiment, but it is still the, me- the most fun you can have. I mean, <laughs> you're it's essentially eight T sixes, um, having fun, blowing up stuff. I mean, it's it's an amazing experience. But um, I think the in Warbirds, the coolest experience I've had has actually been. So I'm also uh, blessed to be able to fly the the CAF's P forty, and that my Ray Kenny and my dad gordon and their mentor and one of my um, um mentors and really good friends ollie crawford who recently passed away um have all flown that aircraft so when i strap that one on it's kind of like i've sat where everybody that played a part in who i am today sat um it's just an amazing airplane um i know i say that about every single airplane yeah. <laughs> it's like <laughs> it's an <all> av- <laughs> amazing though, <right>? yeah <laughs> so in it, like my my wife cj who Another great thing about Torah is since they are training aircraft, all of them have a back seat. So all the wives, significant others, everyone comes. So it is a big family. Though we have four, you know, forty. Uh, usually there's about a dozen of them uh, pyro uh, members that are there. So wherever you go, it's not like if I just take the Cobra somewhere, I may not know people, and I have to go, you know, meet friends. There, it's you know, I got my whole family yeah.
0: there. Yeah.
2: So, um, she, she comes CJ comes to a lot of these air shows with me, and she every time I've been lucky enough to check out a new aircraft, she goes, oh, cool, well, you know, are you happy, you know? And I'm like, oh, of course I'm happy. He's like, okay, well, you know, now you don't have to, you know, go, you know, sponsor another one, or I was like, no, 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 every time you do something in aviation, there's always something else you want to do. <laughs> right. So Right, yeah, yeah, you your do, favorite you airplane get, is the yeah, next one. You right? get your private, you want your commercial, you want your instrument, you want, you know, all this stuff, you fly this, you fly that, I mean, it's... Um, your wife went to the same school. My wife went. Yeah. To <laughs> no, I gotta say I'm I was blessed because she uh, um, a pa- passion for aviation, which I'm sure we all share, is no like no other passion. Passions, one thing. This is almost like eccentric. You know, it's, <laughs> right? But it's uh, I'm very uh, very blessed to have a supportive uh, uh, family and and friends that um, it's neat with more and more of. Um, That generation um, passing away, more and more people going to, and you know, there's great things about it, but going to glass panel aircraft, going to, um, you know, modern aircraft, the fundamentals that started everything the the fly by cedar pants, uh, tailwheel aircraft, radials, all this stuff um, it's to some extent becoming a little bit of a lost art. So it's very imperative and Myself and a lot of my friends included in the in the CAF and other warbird organizations recognize that it's incumbent upon us to ensure that other people have the opportunity to fly the aircraft. Other people can do this because without more pilots and more uh, mechanics and maintainers and operators, these things kind of just are going to sit derelict. And, and you're not going to be able to hear, see, smell and experience what it is to have a, you know, a P-38 lightning fly by or something mm-hmm. epic like that. Because you guys know nothing nothing does justice like a, a radial coming by or something you know right. you can't you can't put breathing. that in a book yeah, yeah. yeah. so They've it's gotta come to life we are very um, um, uh, you know I try to share aviation with anyone I can that's fantastic
1: you, you've mentioned family a couple of times I just it was had a thought you, you talked to uh, early in the episode about uh, you mentioned your grandfather flying mm-hmm. on b-24s in the Pacific have you ever thought about What that conversation would be if you could go back in time to him at that era and say, here you are, you're in the Pacific, uh, you know, fighting life and death for the 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 future of the free world against the Japanese. And then if you could tell him, you know, 75, 80 years from now, uh, I'm going to be pretending to be the Japanese uh, for for entertainment purposes. And I, and I, I mean this in a very positive way, because like, hey, you know, Grandpa, spoiler alert, we win the war. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, and, and not only do we win, you know, we we evolve to a point where we're able to recreate this stuff to to teach people this history and keep it alive. What do you think he might have might have said to that?
2: He'd uh, probably say, "You're crazy. Um, <laughs> get out if you're a future man." You, yeah, <laughs> no, exactly. So uh, we are we are very. The, I've had people come up to me and say, "Hey, you know, you guys are playing the enemy, or you know, all all this stuff." But the the thing that is, the message of Torah especially is staying vigilant. I mean, we've seen it nine eleven. We've seen it in other areas. That as long as as long as we support our military and the men and women that that are in it, we will always be prepared and never to never let your guard down. I think if he had if I told my grandfather that that's the reason we were flying these, Absolutely. he would be hundred uh, percent on board. But you know, he'd be more okay more okay with that than me. You know. Coming home with uh, some Japanese manufactured car or something. <laughs> yeah. Right? Yeah. 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 don't <laughs> yeah. tell them about the Prius. And the yes, garage, exactly, exactly. No.
1: Uh, that's got to come over over time.
2: Yeah, but you just think that whole that whole generation. Um, I don't think they would have thought that what they were doing at the time it, w- it was their duty. I mean, right. everyone of that generation just said, "Hey, you know, if I was a farmer, I just sat down my plow, I went and did my job. I lost friends that did the same thing, but I was." lucky enough by the grace of god to come back and pick up my plow. So it's just kind of that was their duty. I don't it's very rare that you see one of the one of those veterans that would say, "Oh yeah, I'm, you know, I was a hero and you need to honor this." I think they that had I told him that, he was said it's the right message and, you know, thank you. It's not necessary but thank you. Sure.
0: Well, a few years ago we had the pleasure of being parts of a of the ground show in different areas for the Torah Oh, uh, did you? Pearl Harbor. Well, right. Hal got to be uh, running a radio show. I was transporting Pearl Harbor vets from Theater That's... in the Woods, really? so I actually had Pearl Harbor vets uh, in a vehicle on a tram when the Torah Act actually flew over and started. And I got to tell you, those guys were like totally stoked to go watch the show. Like, oh yeah, know, like we want to go see <laughs> the Torah Act kick off. And, uh, Absolutely.
2: i well, it's it's a. Uh, I've always thought, you know. What was it like in 1967 to 69 when they're filming this out at Pearl Harbor, and somebody maybe doesn't get the announcement that, <laughs> hey, they're filming, and somebody walks out on their porch and sees this and goes, not again. Like, <laughs> yeah, <exactly. laughs> yeah. What year is it? Yeah, uh,
0: yeah exactly. Yeah. How how did you uh, how did you feel being on stage when the start of that? that so that was
1: cool. that was interesting. We're talking about uh, it would have been what 2016, 75th anniversary mm-hmm. Pearl Harbor, and so we we uh, we had some programming on the uh, on our uh, central plaza there, Boeing Plaza, and uh, we had set it up as if it were. Uh, we sort of said that evening was uh, was Saturday night, December sixth, nineteen forty one. Was just that was our that was our our gag. So we had. This whole live radio show, we had the big band on stage. Uh, I was the master of ceremonies for that. And then we had, um, we had a troupe of actors who were doing radio programming, and inc- down to reading actual headlines from the evening of December 6th. You know, this is the latest on what's going on here and what's going on there, things like that. And then as that particular show wound down, when we transitioned from the plaza programming to starting the, the evening air show, we sort of flipped the switch and said, now it's Sunday morning. So instead of being Saturday night still now, it's Sunday morning. And so they had me go from being sort of master ceremonies here to being sort of your your guy on the radio, just playing some Hawaiian music and chatting and then mentioning things like, you know, we've gotten reports of a lot of airplanes uh, in the area. It must be our Navy boys up, uh, you know, getting their practice in, you know, give them a wave when you see them and things like this. And, you know, the thing that I remember was, um, you know, working with the tour group quite a bit to sort of change a little bit how you guys normally work it out and, and like – uh, having you come in from behind the crowd coming in from the west um, not having the initial narration which is a wonderful thing because I know that's that's a crucial part of the show but for us we wanted to create the setting and actually start it as a surprise so having them come out of the west out of the setting sun sort of you know, filling in for the rising sun, mm-hmm. but it being the evening show. Um, but the funniest thing for me is, that, so I'm just supposed to be up there playing radio, DJ, playing the music, doing a little bit of patter, things like this. And then, I, of course, I know this is happening. And still, when uh, when I'm up there talking and then I look over my shoulder and then I start to see these silhouettes coming out of the sun, you know, and knowing that all hell is about to break loose with the pyro and everything else, I I got a lump in my throat. I got goosebumps. I get goosebumps now just thinking about it. And it was just a, you know, and I, I had some tiny little part of it, but it was just uh, seeing it as a surprise and then being able to watch the crowd as, you know, with no announcement, nothing else. There was, uh, there was one big pyroblast on the runway And that's when my broadcast was cut off. So that's when I heroically died. Uh, You know, doing my duty as a radio DJ at (laughs) Pearl Harbor, apparently. Um, The the blast goes off, and then there's people in the crowd yell, and they start moving toward the flight line. And then the airplanes come in behind them. And there was a mad rush to the flight line like I've I've never seen during an air show at Oshkosh. And we were were really happy uh, with how that all worked out to be able to just say, let's do this one just a little bit differently. Let's try to bring the element of surprise sort of into people's lives and it was it was a big spectacle and of course it's big and entertainment i think more than that it gave people a little bit more of that visceral sense of everybody's relaxed and happy we're in hawaii it's a beautiful sunday morning and then the world you know drastically and horribly changes
2: forever it is i mean it's the reason like i touched on earlier the um, the commemorative air force among other operators it's this is the only way we can get those people that experiences by operating these aircraft at, at air shows and they're all <clears throat> there are two times really in every it's such a perf- it's it's a, you know we're all volunteers you know we don't make any money off this in fact we spend a lot of money on the aircraft keeping them flying and and um, take time to go to all these air shows and stuff but it is a professional or it's a professional act as a professional organization. So a lot of times it's the excitement's a little lost because we're all just in the zone. Here's our job. Sure. Let's go do it. Be safe. All that stuff. But there are two points in a show where every single show, it could be a tiny little, little tiny show somewhere or it could be Oshkosh. Is when I get goosebumps and it's when we get, all get on, we all line up, um, usually take off in elements. There's two of us taking off together. We're all there kind of cocked so we can see in front. And the Cates are usually in the tail end of the group. And I'm looking down, you know, 10, 11, 12 of these Torah aircraft. And I just say, oh, this is cool. Like that's <laughs> one of the things you're just like, this is cool. Let's go do this. And then the second time that always gets me is coming back. And we're very conscious of when we land and we, we always try to taxi in front of the crowd and waving at the crowd and then afterwards go out up and talking to the crowd. That's the other cool part, because you do see these little, you don't know if this little kid you're talking to is going to be the person that's the first person on Mars or the first person that tests out, you know, hopefully they're not like the next person that tests experimental parachutes or something like that for their (laughs) own safety, but they're going to, they may do something in aviation, like that's their, you may have just changed someone's life. And that's kind of what makes all the the time spent, you know, getting 5606 all over myself, changing out a hydraulic cylinder <laughs> or doing any angler stuff. It makes it it makes it makes worth it. And just seeing the excitement on people's face at these air shows, especially Oshkosh, makes it 100% worth it.
1: Well, not only that, the inspirational piece, but you've also taken, you know, a, a simple sentence in a history book, the Japanese attack Pearl Harbor, and you've taken something like that and you've made it feel very visceral and very real. And, and hopefully, you know, some of those same kids in the audience are going to you know, get out their smartphones and they're going to google Pearl Harbor and try to understand what happened and what led to World War II and as you said uh you know very pointedly before uh how do we make sure that sort of thing never happens again
2: well and you and you also touched on it initially that the, to me as well the two coolest aviation or military aviation movies are Tor Tor Tora and Battle of Britain because we didn't have CGI we didn't have like the new Pearl Harbor movie where everything's CGI and every maneuver they did would have ripped the wings off 10 times you know <laughs> um so it, it 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 is 100% i wish we i wish you know it'd be nice if if hollywood would do one of these but it is with the live-action aircraft. But it is also cost because you look back at how much they spent converting all these aircraft. Uh-huh. You know the Kates cost almost twenty-five thousand dollars a piece in 1967 to convert. So go buy a hundred fifty thousand-dollar T6 and do that today. You know would you'd probably spend more than the budget of Tora back yeah, in right. the day. So, um, but it is uh, I feel very blessed to be able to do, it, and it's just such a wonderful experience.
1: Well, speaking of wonderful experiences, this is this has definitely been one. I see we've definitely gone uh, we've gone a little bit long, but uh, Taylor, thank you so much uh, for coming out to uh, coming out to Oshkosh, uh, uh, bringing your your dad and uh, and entourage <laughs> with you uh, to come out uh, not only to do this uh, episode but to uh, uh, join us for presenting the, the film uh, again as we're recording this it's airing uh, or we're screening it tonight this episode will go out uh, will go out after that fact uh, but we really appreciate you taking the time to come and come and join us Happy to do. Thank you again, Taylor, for joining us. Uh, thanks, as always, to everybody out there who takes some time to give us some feedback, uh, What you can do. You can leave us a review on iTunes or any of the other uh, major podcasting platforms. Uh, those reviews, uh, I say it every time, and I mean it. Uh, that's why we're able to continue doing this is because of that feedback we get. You can also comment on the episodes as they go live on our blog at inspire.ea.org. You can email us, feedback at ea.org any number of ways you always catch ea on facebook twitter and instagram at uh, just slash or at EAA. so uh, keep us posted keep in touch uh keep that uh that feedback coming send us your ideas and uh keep on listening and with that we'll catch up to you the next time when you're cleared to land on the green dot